Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about two very distinct cities in the Bible, Sodom of the famed Sodom and Gomorrah, and also Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. The story of Sodom can be found in Genesis 18 and 19, and the story of Nineveh can be found in the book of Jonah. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a few parallels between these stories, between these cities, and then we'll move into talking about each individual story and what actually happened. Both of these cities were pagan cities. These were not Jewish cities. These were not cities that worshipped Yahweh. These were not cities that were expected to worship Yahweh. In both these stories, something interesting starts this out. There's some sort of call or cry that gets heard by God. So reading from the ESV, this is Genesis 18.20, Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And this is God, and he's talking to Abraham at the time. And he's saying, you know, I'm in heaven, and I get these reports of this incredibly wicked city. And so what I'm going to go do is I'm going to go verify that these rumors are true. So right off the bat, an astute reader will probably recognize that the author of the Genesis 18 story has no concept of omniscience. God is receiving reports. God has to go verify these reports. God sends messengers. It's, it's not even God who actually ends up going down to visit Sodom and Gomorrah to verify the rumors. He sends angels. So who gave him the reports? Was it word of mouth? Was it people praying to heaven to him? You know, the story doesn't really say, but he verifies by sending messengers to go see if the city was as wicked as it was rumored to have been. So very similarly, the book of Jonah starts out the same way. God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so, again, God is experiencing cries against them, maybe prayers, calls from the oppressed to go do something, and, and God's receiving this information and now acting on it. So this is actually pretty common in the Bible. Even if you turn to other stories like uh, Exodus 2, and God is in heaven, and then he receives these uh, cries from his people who are in slavery under Pharaoh. And Exodus 2.24 says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so there's this some sort of information transfer that these texts are describing going on. And a lot of the Psalms, they call for this. They say, God, hear my prayer. Why are you not listening? Why are you not responding? Act, God. Do something. Hear me, Lord, and respond. Texts like this scattered throughout the Bible really reinforce this concept of God's divine counsel, God's divine courtroom. In Job, we see angels presenting before God, bring him information about their whereabouts. And so God is ruling, and he doesn't have to have everything in mind all at once or anything like that. Not in the ancient Jewish concept. Sometimes God needs to be spurred into action through outcries. If someone wants to maintain, like, present omniscience, God knows everything, always, on earth, at all times, you know, that's fine, you could do that, but you have to do something with these verses. You have to try to make them metaphorical, or try to, it's, it's kind of hard to do, especially with the Genesis 18 text, because the Genesis 18 text is all about verification of information, 
that has come to God. In these other texts, they suggest it, but not in such strong language. So something has to be done with this, and a lot of open theists trip up over Genesis 18. If you want to maintain present omniscience or something like that, you, you can. You might be best off taking an Adam Clark type position where God is not forced to know things that he doesn't want to know, and if he, he can know whatever he chooses to know. But the Bible itself is not very big on trying to press that as an attribute of God, like all knowledge of all everything. The general idea is that God watches people, and God knows what people are doing, and then God punishes the wicked. And what the stories of Sodom and of Nineveh do is they show that the Hebrew God, Yahweh, was also a God over the world. He would go out into the foreign nations and judge foreign nations, which were not his people. And he would judge them precisely for moral sin. You don't really see any examples of him punishing foreign nations for worshiping false gods. You don't see that. Some of their practices are barbaric, some of their child sacrifices and stuff like that. And that's part of the reasons why God kicks the foreign peoples out of the, the promised land. He vomits them out because they're so wicked that they do these things. But the explicit reason is never for just worshiping a false god. When God is punishing foreign peoples, it is for moral sins, for oppression, for wickedness. So in both stories, a cry comes to God, an outcry against a wicked city. In the case of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, God is verifying, then destroying. If the cries turn out to be true, God levels the city. In the case of Nineveh, God takes a very different approach. And there's no reasons that are given between these two stories why he takes one approach with one city and one approach with another city. In the case of Nineveh, God actually sends a prophet and the prophet predicts or prophesies a delayed judgment, a judgment that will take place in 40 days. So in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, there is no chance to repent. There's no delayed judgment. And sometimes we also get no chance of repentance, even with a delayed judgment. And we see that throughout the prophets. Ezekiel 8.18, Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Jeremiah 14.12 Though they fast, I will not hear their cry, and though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So in both these cases, we have Israel, and Israel's being punished, and God is just not listening to them, even if they do repent. And th these are delayed punishments. So just having a delay in punishment doesn't necessitate that God is offering a chance for repentance. But that's also not to say that there's not room for repentance still, even in, in the face of very de definite, defined, and concrete proclamations against a city. The normal biblical idea is that God is sovereign, God is the king. He gets to decide when to show mercy, and it's not like he's being unjust. If someone repents they could still be punished for their crime and God would not be guilty of hurting the innocent because he's punishing justly. But God does reserve the right to change his mind in the face of repentance. And that's one of the themes in the story of Jonah and what makes Jonah very angry with God. So in the story of Jonah, we're going to start with the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is an Israelite, and he gets a call from God, and his call is to go to the city of Nineveh. And at this time, assumably, the Syrian Empire had Israel as a vassal state. 
And so the Assyrians were really hated by Israel, and Jonah really hated the Assyrians, and Jonah just did not want to go to Nineveh to try to preach to these guys. And so what does he do? He runs away. He tries to go to another land. And what is he trying to do there? What is his theology that allows him to make this decision? Jonah's under the impression that he could run from God. He could either go to a land in which God, Yahweh, is not necessarily the voice that is of predominance. There's a lot of ancient Jewish idea that the God was local to whatever city or state. But Jonah also realizes that God is the God over the land and sea. So perhaps he's just trying to get God to try to appoint someone else. He's trying to put up so much hassle in front of God's appointing him as a prophet to Nineveh that God's just going to forget about him and select someone else. Jonah's very interesting because he's the only real example we have in the Bible of a prophet, someone appointed by God, trying to resist their calling and trying to branch out and do something on their own. And God reclaims him. God uses uh, miracles. God uses his power to force this prophet into servitude. This is not a very voluntary action on the part of Jonah. It doesn't seem like he has the, the choice. I mean, he could just, like, die. And at one point in the story, he does ask to die because he's so fed up with the events that do happen. But Jonah is pretty much being impressed into God's servitude. God finds a big fish to swallow him and transport him to Nineveh and spit him again on dry land. Jonah's not getting away. And so then the text, it resets. Jonah's a very simple book. It reads very easily, and the concepts are pretty straightforward. It doesn't go into a lot of flowerly language. It's not a very long book because it just sticks to the facts of what happens. And each of these facts are important for what it's trying to tell its reader. And this part of the story is kind of telling them they cannot resist God's will. God's going to find a way. And, uh, you know, you better just live with what God's trying to get accomplished. And literally in chapter 3, it's like a reset. Jonah 3.2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's, it's just like a reset. The first two chapters just have not happened and again, it's this call to Jonah to do what he is originally called to do. All that other stuff, all his trying to get out of God's will was meaningless. It's reset. God says, again, just go do this. Jonah, this time, understands that he's not going to get out of this. Even though he hates the Assyrians, he's going to go do God's will. And so what does he do? He goes up and goes into Nineveh, and he starts preaching the message that God told him. And the message is very simple. And the message is, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What do we notice from that message? There's no mention about God. There's no mention about Yahweh. There's no mention about how that city is going to be destroyed. It's just a very simple, obscure message. And we see in the way that the people react to that message, that is his message. He's, he's not being super flowery. He's not going into these long diatribes and detailed explanations of what's going on. He's not even preaching repentance to these guys. He's not saying repent. He doesn't want these guys to repent. He wants them dead. He wants them all to die. And we see that in the story as we continue. So in this story, something miraculous happens. And we don't have any records anywhere else in all of history of something this similar happening. The entire Assyrian people, the entire Assyrian city, it repents. It repents, puts on sackcloth, and it mourns, and it goes into this deep repentance for their moral crimes. 
And the king, he hears about this stuff, and he says, you know, he puts out a decree that reinforces what the people are already doing. The people are in this deep mourning or repentance. And then the king says, you know, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger and we may not perish. See, this is not part of the message. These guys have to assume and they say, who knows? They say, we don't know. The prophet doesn't know. Nobody knows what God's going to do. It's up in the air. And remember, when God gives delayed judgment, it doesn't have to leave room for repentance. It just doesn't have to. And so the point of this part of the story is, it's true. No one knows whether or not God's going to forgive these guys and actually repent from his fierce anger. Jonah doesn't know. The king doesn't know. The people don't know. It's up in the air. God could, if he wanted to, destroy them. There'd be nothing wrong with that. But God also could show mercy. And that's always a possibility, especially when Yahweh is operating. And here's the most interesting thing about this text. In Jonah 1 and 2, you know, they're talking about Yahweh. And you see that in your English Bible, Lord, all capitals. Those, that's when the name of the Lord is used, Yahweh. But in chapter 3, when the pagans start talking, they start talking about Elohim. The word abruptly changes from Jonah's use of the word Yahweh to the people's use of the word Elohim. The God who, to whom they're repenting is not part of Jonah's message. People in Nineveh don't know that they're repenting to Yahweh. This reinforces the idea that Nineveh is being judged for moral sins and not for paganism. And it also reinforces the idea that Jonah's message was what the text says that he preached. He preached a very simple message, and it wasn't about repentance to any specific God, and he didn't really elaborate on this message. The people don't even know who Yahweh is. The last verse in Jonah 3 is a pretty strong open theist proof text because it fits with the story, it's what the story's talking about, and there's no way to get around it and trying to claim it's some sort of um, metaphor or something like that. And it reads, when God saw what they did, you notice the present accumulation of knowledge, it's not like a future foreknown from all eternity, how they turned from their evil way, it describes what they did. So God's watching what they did. Then God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to him, and he did not do it. So pretty clearly, because Jonah is a simple book and the messages are very simple and not very flowery, it gets straight to the point of what the text is about. And there's no wiggle room around this. There's no way to just try to dismiss this out of hand. God said he would do something, and then God saw that the people changed. Therefore, God changed. That's the message. And literally, literally, that is the entire message of the book of Jonah. Even to this pagan people that is hated by Israel, God will change his mind if the people repent. God will show mercy to a pagan people that is hated and despised, who are exceedingly wicked, who then turn around. And that's the point of Jonah. This is not a verse that can be just dismissed and overturned because of some theology we want to bring to the text. That just undoes the entire point of the book of Jonah. You have to dismiss out of hand the entire book of Jonah if you want to hold to ideas of future omniscience of all events or immutability, stuff like that, because that's not what Jonah's about. The book of Jonah is about the opposite 
of that, which is stressed in the very next chapter as well, when Jonah talks about some core characteristics of Yahweh. Of course, Jonah is furious at this point. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He wanted his enemies dead. And he didn't like the idea that God was going to show them mercy. And so Jonah gets really, really angry. And he prays to the Lord, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Calvinists will try to take this and they'll say, Look, so Jonah knew that repentance was part of the message. Repentance was not part of the message. And repentance doesn't work as part of the message unless God doesn't know the future. It doesn't read that way in the text. And if God says he's going to do something, knowing full well he's not going to do that thing, God is a liar. And so there's plenty of other reasons why we know that repentance was not part of Jonah's message. First of all, Jonah hates Nineveh. He doesn't want these guys saved. He wants them to die. And we already established that his message was very simple, and the people didn't even know that it was Yahweh who they were repenting to, which also invalidates the argument that these people knew the characteristics of Yahweh, that he was forgiving and stuff. No, they don't even know that they're repenting of Yahweh. It's not, it's not a part of the equation. And Jonah withdraws to see if they are going to get destroyed. And, uh, you know, it's, it says that in verse 4 or 5. He doesn't know yet. Even after he gets mad at God, he doesn't know that these people are going to be destroyed or saved. And so neither God nor Jonah act as if repentance was part of the message. God doesn't say to Jonah, you know, you, you, you preach to these people that if they repented, then they would be saved, and then they did repent, and that's why I'm saving them. That's not part of the conversation because that wasn't part of the message. And Jonah doesn't act like he preached repentance either. The message that's given, that's described, it doesn't even give that as an option. And the people, all the people, they don't know if it's part of the message. There's nothing in this text that suggests that repentance is part of this message. When Calvinists say this, they're doing great disservice to the text. It's terrible. So the book of Jonah, it ends, and God is teaching Jonah a lesson. And the lesson is this. It's, we need to pity Nineveh. These people don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. They're kind of ignorant. And this reinforces this biblical concept, and this is throughout the Bible, that people are judged based on what they know. That is not a Calvinist concept. So Israel, when they're reading the book of Jonah, they need to take away from this that God is the God of the world. He judges foreign nations for their immorality. And then God also values these foreign peoples. God's not exclusively the God of Israel. And God does care about the well-being and the behavior of these foreign peoples. God's even going to show the worst of them the most extraordinary mercy if they repent. So the book of Jonah is a very non-exclusive text. The book of Jonah is a very universal text teaching Israel that the Gentiles too have value in God's eyes and God is a God of mercy. And Jonah acts as the foil character. Jonah acts as the person who wants to uphold the values of justice over the values of mercy. And that's just not who Yahweh is. So now we're going to look at the Sodom text. So God is with Abraham, and God uh, tells Abraham that he's going to give him uh, many children through Sarah. 
And then uh, as God's leaving, God consults with Abraham. God invites him into his counsel. And throughout the Bible, you have various divine counsel scenarios where people give advice to God and talk to God. And God says that specifically he wants Abraham's input because Abraham will be a great and mighty nation. And this verse is very open theistic. I'm going to read the New King James because it's better than the ESV in translation. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. How does God know this? Let's figure this out. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So God says, I know that Abraham will command his children to be godly, and that way I know that his children are going to get my promises that I promised to Abraham. You know, did that happen? No, not really. So in the text, God knows what Abraham's children are going to do because he knows who Abraham is and what Abraham is going to teach his children. So it's not like an omniscience of the future, and that's not present in this text. That's especially not present in this text when God is saying, I'm going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah to see what's going on down there. Just the author of Genesis 18 had no familiarity with omniscience. It's just not part of the theological landscape during the time that this was written. So in this text, Abraham tempers God's wrath. God's going to destroy the entire city, and Abraham starts talking to him about, you know, what if he finds some righteous people there? So if God goes down to the city and finds 50 righteous people, is God going to destroy it? And God says, well, you know, that would probably be bad to destroy the wicked with the righteous. And, you know, the entire city will probably be spared for like 50 people. And so then they get in this back and forth, and Abraham kind of tests God to see how low God will go. Because, you know, some collateral damage might be okay. Like during the flood, where God flooded the entire earth, I'm, you know, I'm sure innocent children did die. You know, collateral damage sometimes does happen, but how much is too much? And to Abraham, you know, ten people was not enough to destroy the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God agreed with Abraham. And God is changing his plans based on the input of Abraham, his beloved friend. So we know from the text that Abraham is taking this super seriously because he thinks that God's going to get mad at him for lowering God's number and questioning God's actions. And so Abraham keeps preferencing it. Don't be angry at me, Lord, but uh, let me ask one more thing. You know, that's a theme we see also in Exodus when Moses is talking to God, and God actually does get angry at Moses because of his continual pestering. And this is not a picture in Exodus or Genesis of a God with full future omniscience of all things. This is a God being pestered and annoyed by his creation. So 10 is the number. God and Abraham settle on 10 righteous people. All they have to do is find 10 righteous people and these cities, these great cities will be saved. So what actually happens in Genesis 19? The angels go into Sodom and they're immediately assaulted by all these locals who want to rape them have homosexual relations with them, stuff like that. Lot brings these people, these angels, into his house and protects them. And for his righteousness, the angels offer to save not only him, but his daughters and their husbands. But the husbands refuse to come, and Lot himself in the story, not many people realize this, but Lot also kind of refrains from leaving the city right away. The angels are forced to grab Lot by the hand and grab his children by the hand, and just kind of force them out of the city because they weren't moving. 
It's not like all the depictions of Sodom and Gomorrah where they're leaving willingly. No, these angels are kind of forcing these guys out. They're like, you guys don't realize that this city's like super legit going to get destroyed and we're just going to grab you guys and pull you out of here. So at this point, God is resolved on destroying all these cities. But Lot, he doesn't want to like live in the mountains like some sort of weird uh, rural farmer or something like that. And he says, God, you know, you could destroy these big cities and everything, but uh, I would like this little small city, Zor. Uh, please don't destroy that one because I'd like to live somewhere civilized. So I'm just going to read the text here. This is presumably God speaking or an angel speaking. See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And so notice this entire lack of, like, fatalism or a lack of future omniscience. God is modifying his plans on the fly in response to people. An entire city is saved from destruction just because... A righteous person, Lot, wants to live there rather than in the mountains. And this entire city is saved. That wasn't part of the original plan. And to top it all off, God says, you know, I'm just going to wait for you to get where you need to be before I destroy all these other cities. So God's really catering his time frame to Lot. Lot goes and lives in Zor for a little bit, and then he leaves and then goes and lives in the mountains afterwards. The text is kind of ambiguous why he didn't stay in Zor. Maybe he didn't feel welcome something like that. But uh, that kind of ends the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what's the point of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? And some people say this is all about being hospitable to strangers, you know, treat strangers with respect and protect them, stuff like that. I don't see that as the theme at all. I see the theme of this as God has power over the pagan peoples and God will punish wickedness when that wickedness reaches such a level. That God has control over the earth and God is king, sovereign, even over these foreign peoples, these foreign lands that don't worship him. He's still in control. And God will show mercy. God will show justice. God will save the righteous. And people can influence God. And these I see as very systematic themes throughout Genesis. So notice another parallel between the story of Jonah and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The stories highlight God's flexibility, God's innovation, God's justice, God's mercy, and God's dealings with pagan people, God's uh, righteousness. There's just a lot of connections between both Sodom and Nineveh. But most of all, and this is a very important point in pretty much any narrative you find about Yahweh in the Bible, is his relationship with human beings. Genesis highlights God's relationship with Abraham. Abraham's able to persuade God to do things that God wouldn't have otherwise done. God confides in him and listens to him and understands what he says and does what he says. And then Lot, right afterwards, is able to do that. He's able to change God's plans. God says, I want you to go live in the mountains. And Lot says, ooh, I don't think so. How about I go live somewhere else? And then in the story of Nineveh, this highlights God's relationship with pagan peoples, with these foreign peoples. These people were truly repentant. They were truly sorry for all the wicked they have done. And God is relational. God's not just going to destroy a bunch of people and just kill them for no apparent reason and obliterate them from the earth, never to be seen again. God's going to give them a chance. God's going to let them try again. God is full of mercy, even on people who do not deserve mercy. And so what's God's relationship with Jonah? 
God is firm with Jonah, and when Jonah gets mad at God, God tries to explain his reasoning, and he uses illustrations, and he tries to convince Jonah that what he's doing is the right way, the right method. And he's, he's very concerned about Jonah, even though Jonah wasn't allowed to escape his duties as a prophet, even though Jonah wasn't able to decline, God really wanted him to understand his reasoning. And the text of Jonah just never has Jonah coming around. It never says that Jonah repented as well. Jonah ends the text bitter, bitter at God, bitter that God showed mercy over justice. And Jonah would be a picture of what a lot of Jews would hope that God was like, that God would just punish the wicked without any chance for repentance. So Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed without repentance. So why is it? God has a variety of tools in his tool belt in the Bible. God sometimes does one thing with one situation and another thing with another situation. I'm just going to read a quick quote by Walter Brueggemann that talks about this. So Walter Brueggemann writes, The tension, oddness, incongruity, contradiction, and lack of settlement are to be understood, not in terms of literature or history, but as central data of the character of Yahweh. This suggests that Yahweh, as evidenced in or by Israel, has available as a character a range of inclinations, a repertoire of possible responses, a conundrum of loyalties, commitments, and expectations that are being endlessly educated. While certain tendencies, propensities, and inclinations have some stability, being more or less consistent, Israel and Israel's rhetoricians never know beforehand what will eventuate in the life of Yahweh. Thus, it is not known whether the judge will sentence or pardon, the warrior will fight for or against, the king will banish or invite to the table, the potter will work attentively or smash, the gardener will cultivate and protect or pluck up, the shepherd will lead and feed or judge between sheep and sheep, the doctor will heal or pronounce the patient terminally ill. Such a conclusion is not contextless. We do not say these things concerning Yahweh, as though every occasion of response were arbitrary flip of the coin. No, of course not. Yahweh is deeply enmeshed in the tradition of textuality, is committed to what has been previously claimed, and is held accountable for the chance for life together between Yahweh and Israel. Thus, the offer of Yahweh is not sheer capriciousness, but even so, one may ask, does the life with this God not entail anxiety? Even if there is a tendency in a certain reliable direction, there is always a chance of a response in another direction. For Yahweh has a vast repertoire of possible responses. Yes, the faith of Israel is not without anxiety. All of us can relate to this, especially people with kids. You know, your kid does something bad, accidentally breaks something. You know, sometimes you could be mad. Sometimes you could be forgiving. Sometimes you could be comforting. You know, you have a tool belt that you could use, and you don't always have to do the same reaction to the same event. And the responses are not right or wrong, but we do have a range of responses that we can give to any particular situation. My own opinion as why Sodom and Gomorrah was very different than the Nineveh story was that in Genesis, God is still experimenting with human beings. He doesn't know how to treat human beings. He doesn't know how to interact fully with human beings. You know, you see the Tower of Babel incident. You see the Genesis 6 flood and then the redemption after the flood. God is still figuring out the best way to approach human beings. And this destruction is just one of the few ways that the Bible shows God interacting with humans very early in creation. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or on our companion Facebook page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.